Okay, well, uh, we can start just to finish the thought from uh, before we started recording. I mean, if that's your point of view, that's fine. But I, I don't go in for that level of uh, misogyny myself. So, you know. They had it coming, Schreiner. They had it coming. I just welcome to the Toronto Beer Podcast with me, your host, Chris Schreier. And as you already can tell, I did manage to get my my, my duck in a row. <laughs> Yeah. Jordan is here with us. Jordan St. John of the uh, Ontario Craft Beer Guide. I almost said Canada. That would be quite a tome. Uh, I have considered that periodically and better judgment has waylaid me on the way to the publisher's office. That is uh, good judgment. I mean, uh, I think in order to do that, you'd need somebody in every province who had the level of experience that I do. Yeah. So you'd need like Joe Weeby from British Columbia, and he's got stuff to do. You know, he's a giant of a man. You can't tell him what to do anyway. <laughs> uh, let me think for a second. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is going to end up going on the real podcast feed for, for, let me try that again. So for the sake of the podcast, can I introduce you to my friend, Rob Curry? This is Link Ray Gun. It is our theme. we don't actually get to hear the song until the uh, podcast goes live. Um, I'm not that technologically advanced, but we are here. That was the Curry Brothers link is in the description. And we are joined by Jordan Jordan. Uh, we discussed uh, many options for uh, what to have for beer. Uh, I, I actually did find um, uh, that they have the guava sour. Is that uh, does that sound like something side launch makes? That's one of them. Yeah, there's a, a hibiscus one and a passion fruit one. And there's, it might have been passion fruit. Yeah. Anyway, available at my local LCBO, but that is not what we opted for. Instead, we went for the Silver Bullet. I think uh, that wasn't their branding, was it? That's a isn't um, a Coors Light a Silver Bullet? Yeah, Coors Light's a Silver Bullet. I think these guys do one thing really, really well. Oh, okay, that sounds believable. This is if you're listening to the podcast, Pabst Blue Ribbon. I don't know what fair. They entered the beer contest, uh, but whichever one it was, they won the blue ribbon. I think it's like the 1890s. I don't think anybody's updated it since then. Yeah. You know, it's it's fair to rest on your laurels. I'm fine with that. You know, I've never even really spent that much time looking at the can. There's a lot of words on it. Well, here's the thing. And you got to remember this. The last time this was on Vogue was because of exactly the same reason that it's on Vogue at the moment. Like it was a... Economic turn down 2006 to 2009 situation. Mm -hmm. And this Ossington hipster beer. This was, it was the cheapest thing you could buy. Right. When we were getting into the thing, we would not have appreciated Pabst Blue Ribbon. No, sir. We would have no. been talking about, uh, I don't know, Church Key, Holy Smoke, or some other thing that had come through Barbola. I can literally remember going to like Ronnie's local in, uh, in Kensington. And the room was divided sort of 80, 20, 20 being folks like us with, I was going to say with beards, the entire place had beards, uh, but drinking little tulip glasses of some sort of quadruple IPA that, you know, you could probably stand a straw in, but the 80 part of the bar were also bearded hipsters, but just 
slugging PBR. And I remember at the time feeling very high and mighty about it uh, because I, I thought, well, th- well, that's just ridiculous. What are, what are these, what are these fellas doing? But uh, for me, the love affair with PBR now, I mean, Hey, the price, you're right. You can't beat it. But with age and maturity, I, I can not only accept, but enjoy a North American lager. There's nothing wrong with it. If it's, if it's done well and PBR does it fine. There's, there's nothing wrong with what they're putting in the can. It's not an essay beer, you know, but I drink this after almost every rugby practice. Cause again, as you say, it's cheap. So it's what the guys show up with the way that I know we should open these, by the way, that this is a beer that I, I will, I mean, I paid money for this, my own money. Um, is there's been more than one occasion when somebody has brought a flat of PBR and somebody else has brought a flat of something else. And the one time I remember very specifically, it was Laker, which I didn't even know they still made. Yeah. Yeah. And so I had a PBR, you know, we're standing around the bleachers after training, everyone's hot and sweaty and muddy and, Oh, that beer goes down real smooth. That's nice. Oh, I like that. And then uh, I'd finished it, throwing my can on the ground. So I'm like, yo, Schreier, and threw me a can out of the cooler. And that one was a Laker. And of course, I'm not going to be like, no, 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 no. Give me a PBR. You just take the beer you're handed. So I took it and I opened it. I took a sip and I went, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish this. I really want a PBR right now. <laughs> uh, here's the thing. And this is important. Uh, like that value brand range has probably the widest range of quality in brewing yeah there's some really terrible stuff down at that end of the spectrum and like you know if you can find something like pbr or old style pilsner yeah comparatively well made yeah um, not such a bad idea i always thought you know when i was writing for the sun back like a decade ago i did a thing called discount beer february where i tasted through everything that existed in the value range at the beer store yep I figured, you know, there must be a best one. We should do a public service for the readers of the right-wing newspaper who don't actually like craft beer. Yeah. You know, you, you got to know your audience. <laughs> this was before everything went crazy. I, I didn't really align with them politically because I think everybody understands. Um, the uh, the PBR thing, though, it was just like one of the top three options, along with Trailhead from Wellington. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that too. Okay, I just admitted somebody. I've pinned our video, so they shouldn't show up. It doesn't look like they have their video on anyway, so that's fine. Uh, but heads up, there's somebody else in the room right now. We'll oh, say it's AS. I normally actually intentionally out people, but I don't know who this is, so I don't want to dox them. Uh, anyway, hey, welcome aboard, AS. Um, AS, if you have a question, put it in the chat. We're not turning on microphones today. I better open the chat window, though. Uh, yeah, I mean, my thing, I guess what it came down to is I, I realized obviously that I enjoyed, like, I've always liked the steam whistle. I've always, I've always had a soft spot for, uh, especially out of the glass bottle. Oh, that just the sound of the carrying the six pack and they're clinking together. Ah, it's just, it's like angels singing. Um, and then, yeah, all of a sudden Bim's making really crazy high quality loggers started drinking more loggers regularly started drinking this at rugby and it's like most of the beer i drink these days are either incredibly beer geeky high-end crispy boy loggers or 
totally macro produced and yet delicious and well-made crispy boy lockers. <laughs> like I've got some juicing in my fridge, but other than that, it's just PBR. <laughs> it's really hard. I mean, the thing about PBR is that it's, it's not particularly interesting. No. But it continues to exist. I mean, this is really important. Like, uh, I'm currently I'm working on a project for the Ontario Craft Brewers where I'm going doing a little historical data entry stuff for them. And in this case, I'm going through like 2018 to the current day, updating their timeline. Okay. I have to go through Canadian beer news day by day for five years. I'm up to 2021. <laughs> it's not the nicest job in the world, but it's, you know, it's not outside and I'm not digging a ditch. So that's good. Um, but like 2019, I think Sawdust City did a beer every week. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those will never come back, even if people liked them. You know, maybe three years from now, you'll get another version of Flapdoodle or something. And it's just like, eh, all right. But you're not really playing to the audience at that point. The audience just wants, you know, something predictable. If they're going to drink a bunch of something. Yeah, I think, I think as well... I don't know. There's this whole, you know, the whole post-craft thing. People talk about it, like, are we post-craft? Does it even have any value anymore? Does the statement mean anything? Whatever. Um, but I think without actually, I mean, we can engage in that debate, but without engaging in that debate for the moment, the, the thing is craft beer or whatever you want to call it, small beer or whatever, it now has such market presence and it's it's consumed by so many people. I mean, I know that by sales, it's still like, are they still under ten percent or something? Like, it's still quite low, right? I want to say in Ontario, it might be close to fifteen. We don't okay. have no actual data on it. The only people who know that are the CRA, <laughs> and they don't share. <laughs> well, I think you can actually ask them to share, but the process for doing so is to contact them by written mail. At their Mississauga address. So it's, uh, I, I've never bothered. Yeah. Nobody else has, as far as I know, either. Uh, what, what I will say about it, though, is that uh, most of the numbers that you see are based on LCBO sales data. And, right. you know, depending on who owns who at what point in time, that changes considerably. So I, I'd put it close to 15. Yeah, right. But my point is more than just that um, so many people now are consuming it not because they're they're going out of their way to support a, a small local brewer but just because it's become somewhat ubiquitous like it's like you go to the grocery store you know oh look you know half of the fridge isn't uh macro lagers right half of the fridge is something else so you go, oh, i'll pick up that i'll pick that but those people still don't want <laughs> you know a new england style ipa <laughs> they want a cold yellow beer and so it's almost like you can't, I mean, I guess you can, you can operate as a brewery at a certain scale and do like a new interesting beer every week for a year. And, Oh, like we're really digging into the history books this week. We're, we're going to make a, you know, I don't know what, like a, some, you know, 18th century soured Porter. And you're like, cool. I mean, as a, as an exercise, what an, what a fascinating beverage to consume, but Nobody wants that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> the argument I've seen recently is that craft beer has become like experiential as opposed, because, you know, if you've trained an entire generation of people 
to basically go to the LCBO and buy an eight pack of individual cans. Like you're not even buying two of the same thing. Then mm-hmm. they're never really going to develop a taste for sitting there drinking, you know, six of something. And I find that there's like a generational divide that happens somewhere around like 37 years old, like older cohort millennials. They're used to six packs. Everybody younger than that. No. Yeah. That's really, you know, what kind of what's driving it, I think, demographically. Well, it's funny, too. I don't know if you listened to uh, when Ben and uh, his buddy Chris interviewed Tweedy, but he was talking about how they can see and appreciate the decline of untapped usage among people in the in the in the tap room where it used to be four people would come in order like four flights sit down and all of them right away the phone comes out and they're you know tap 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 like and uh and he's like you know there's still some of that but that that's kind of dropping it's not so much like chasing a list or whatever it's like you say it's like ha- having the experience of drinking it like i don't know I, I think the mindset's really changed i mean certainly i i stopped using untapped i don't want to brag a long time ago but uh but for the period that i used it shit i just remember my fridge is still on for the period while i used it i used it every single time i drank a beer and like it framed every time what i was thinking about every time i had a beer it's like Oh, I gotta, I gotta put a rating. And because I knew how awful everybody on Untapped was, I felt like this extra pressure to do good, <laughs> like not to be an, a terrible Untapped person. Um, which it turns out, by the way, it's impossible. There's like legitimately Untapped is an incredible resource for one thing, which is in this current situation where there's a new beer every week, is going back and figuring out when that beer was launched, because the first review will be the first day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's fair. Yeah. Uh, also for uh, angst, you can you can read a lot of angst in those uh, those reviews. Yeah. I mean, if there was one thing that the pandemic highlighted for me, it was that brewers should never interact with the general public. And Untapped is a great example of that. Like, you're trying to sell these people this beer. They don't know anything about beer. The capacity that you have to educate them is limited. So you're probably not going to be able to change their minds about anything unless they have a really fantastic experience. Um, so when they put in, well, it's pretty good for a logger, but I don't like logger one star. Right. Yeah. Um, like you can't get angry at stupid people. I mean, you can't. <laughs> it's just, it's tiring. Yeah. And I, I feel that there was so much fatigue on the part of brewers who were looking at that, that it's, it's not, you know, First of all, it's not dignified if you're taking yourself seriously as a businessman or a craftsperson or as an artist to listen to the dumbest person who's buying your product. It's like it's not going to be validating for you. It's not going to be uh, in any way in beginning to use a cromulent word. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, untapped. Oh, God. The thing is, like, uh, there was a period there were, you know, people going out in a group of four. They're trying a new thing. That's yeah. good social activity it's fine it's a nice thing to do but i mean it does you know become very difficult to have that idea of exclusivity when there's so much stuff that you can't possibly keep up with it so i mean if the idea was i have five thousand ratings on untapped i know more than you do and there's like that many beers coming out this season you know it's, it's not possible anymore so yeah. you lose it for that reason 
Yeah. Yeah. Untapped. Not sad. I was going to say, see that gone. I think it still exists. I just never see it. So. Oh yeah, no, it it's definitely exists. But if you were a brewery at this point, I mean, you might've at one point retweeted a really good untapped rating, but you're never going to put it on Instagram because who cares? Yeah. And Twitter's dead. So, you know, there it is. Hey, speaking of things that are dead, we should pour one out. Haven't discussed this because I don't think the news had broken last Monday, or maybe it just had. And I was, oh no, last Monday was terrible. I was so tired. I was dying last Monday. It was awful. Um, we'd had, I don't know if I'd even got into the details of why it was in such a bad state, but we'd had, um, we do this fundraiser every year called rugby volleyball and it's for the rugby section to raise money. And uh, we play beach volleyball and get like obscenely drunk. And, uh, and then I had a, a kid's tournament the next morning. So I went from like shocking amounts of, I think I was mostly drinking three speed actually, which was quite nice. I, I like a good three speed speaking of reliably snappy yellow beers. Um, but uh, to that, to waking up, to drive to Aurora to coach rugby for three hours in the sun and got home on Saturday, went to the beach with some friends and just sat around and kept drinking. So when I woke up on Monday, I was just ruined. It was so bad. And so the podcast was garbage. But anyway, uh, whether or not Anchor had died at that point, uh, the news, of course, did break. We're going to lose anchor brewing ostensibly but i have a theory which is that somebody's going to swoop in and buy it off them and be like look if you're not going to do it we will but uh it was pretty much gone anyway i think they'd moved their distribution to only california like during the pandemic yeah it, it was actually only two months ago uh when they shut down the distribution oh really i thought it was earlier than that but i certainly haven't seen it in ontario and i can't remember how long but I mean, it's it's fascinating to watch people discuss it online because, you know, some of the takes are just not particularly good on it. Like people don't understand why you would, if you were Sapporo, not be interested in maintaining that brewery. Mm. And Sapporo are a very technologically advanced brewery from Hokkaido who do a very specific thing. Like it's very, you know, Japanese, the, the attitude towards it. It's like, we're going to make something within a fine tolerance and it's going to be precisely up to spec. And it's impossible to do that on 123 year old equipment. It's just like anchor steam at its best is kind of this rustic throwback thing. Um, and it's got character and it's a great beer because it has character like that Northern brewer hop with the minty thing. Yeah. I always go kind of more parsley is what I get off of it, but totally it's like chlorophyll. Yeah. It's in that range. Yeah. And you know, you end up with that characteristic, which is this brash kind of, thing that people were making do with in the 19th century and which Fritz kind of reinvented later. Yeah. You've got Sapporo lager, which is, you know, 50% rice probably. And probably it's, at least. Yeah. It's light and it's very, you know, to give you an, an idea, I mean, when they were making it in Canada, they made it at the same plant that they're making Pabst at. Oh, really? Yeah. Is Pabst a, a, a Sapporo product? Yeah. Well, no, it's a, it's a Stro Canada, which is Sleeman. Oh, so yes, you just yeah. follow the branches back to the trunk. Well, Sleeman, um, I think when they opened in 86 or whatever it was, had a 25% investment from Stroh in Detroit. Stroh was still a big deal at that point. Huh. 
I didn't realize that at all. Yeah, it's funny, actually, until exactly this moment, I couldn't have told you who made PBR. <laughs> I'd seen that it was Stroh. I had no idea who that was, but you're right. It does say Guelph, Ontario. Like I said, I haven't really read the can since 1844. Delicious. Um, my thing with, uh, with Anchor and, and like the reason why it's worth protecting so, I mean, everybody knows the uh, the story, you know, Fritz saved small craft, pre-craft brewing. Everyone else is consolidating and, you know, racing to the bottom in, in the name of profit, like whatever. And he was like, no, 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 we're going to make this old style, really esoteric kind of beer. Uh, and, and like, that's very important and everything. But the other thing that I don't know how many people have taken the time to think about this, but Liberty was probably the first American IPA. Mm -hmm. Like it's not an English IPA. It's an American IPA. And I don't know when it first came out, but it like, it's back there. 1975. There you go. I was even thinking possibly eighties. And even at that American IPA didn't exist when that beer was made, you know? Well, Here's the thing. It didn't exist for the four years afterward either. It did so badly the first time they made it with the audience that uh, they, they didn't make it again until 1980. <laughs> Michael legitimately to celebrate the anniversary of Paul Revere's ride, I think. Okay. And it, uh, like, nobody wanted Cascade Hops. This is the thing that is uh, never really mentioned, is that the big brewers didn't want them because they were too flavorful. And, like, I think there's an argument to be made. There's a brewery called New Albion, which I think was Jack McAuliffe or something like that in California that existed for, like, three, four years that was doing that kind of thing. But, you know, it's the opposite foundational myth from Fritz, which is we're going to start from the bottom. We're going to start with no money. We're going to do this in our garage, and we're going to go out of business. Right. Like, nobody wants to hear that story. It's not very interesting. We've seen a lot of it, honestly. Um, with Fritz Maytag, I think the compelling thing is that here's a guy who has a huge amount of money. Um, you know, he's Stanford educated. And I think when he takes over, he's 28 or something like that. And he trusts his own judgment enough to use the Maytag, uh, like stock that he has in his, basically his inheritance, uh, to say, I believe in this thing. I'm going to do it. I'm going to risk the money that I have. And for some reason, like when people tell the story, they don't think about the fact that he, first of all, had a huge amount of money. Yeah, he like he could back up a dump truck kind of level of money. But he he didn't. I mean, to his credit, he went and did the thing anyway. But it's it's like it's a more nuanced story than people really tell it as. It's uh, in the same way that Jim Cook with Sam Adams, you know, he has a Harvard MBA and he was in the same class as Mitt Romney. Right. So, you know, when he tells you that he was selling beer out of the trunk of his car, I mean. It was probably a real nice car. <laughs> well, it's a little bit, I mean, it's not exactly the same, but it's a little bit like Bezos always talks about how like, you know, he, he pulled up his socks and got to work in his parents' garage with a, it was like a million dollar investment or something like that from his father. It's like, oh yeah, you really had to dig deep there, Jeff. Yeah. The, the old, the old money rolling in to pay for your server costs for the first six years of operation. Like, Yeah. But I mean, it's like having written a couple of histories, I can say that legitimately the number of people who start something from absolute scratch 
and continue to be in the industry after 15 years is about 2%. Like, yeah, it's, it's, like, like, it's not possible. Like the, when people say it takes money to make money, they're not joking. Like, <laughs> yeah, and, and like Ken Woods, you know, from Black Oak for a long time made the observation that if you wanted to make a million dollars in craft beer, you probably need to start with two. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 That's uh, it's, it's helpful. That said, if anchor is indeed gone, that, that will be a sad day. Well, I like the idea that Narragansett swoops in and picks them up. I genuinely was thinking Boston beer. Not a bad idea. Really. It's a good fit. They're all throwback brands, but you know, I think Jim is kind of semi-retired at this point, and they've apparently altered the recipe for Sam Adams Boston Lager. Can you still get Boston Lager in uh, in Ontario? Yeah, that's another just, one I haven't seen in ages. Hey, look, my wife wants to watch. Well, it's it's distributed by Mooseheads. That fits. Yeah. Oh yeah, I remember they did that strategic partnership a while back, right? Yeah. And they were bringing Moosehead down the eastern seaboard as well. Well, but I mean, I'm not sure how long that stays in force for because Moosehead now makes Grolsch. Do they really? Mm -hmm. huh, I had no idea. I've lost so much. Like, I wasn't really plugged in before the pandemic, and then the pandemic hit, and my beer world became, I was going to say very small. It became three breweries. Oh, you and everybody else, man. <laughs> I, I missed that Amsterdam got sold. I think I learned about that about six months after it happened. Would you just walk into the tap room one day and start talking to Cody? No, I saw, I saw it online. Somebody referenced like that there were sellouts or something. And I went, oh, sellouts, eh? And then I looked into it and I went, oh, actually, they did literally sell out. That's, I mean, the, the thing with Amsterdam with that, that's not really a problem. Like, it's not like they had an owner who was owned a pair of rubber boots. Like, they, it was, I think Jeff was like their third or fourth owner. Like, well, the original owner, Roel Bramer, has written his autobiography, and he portrays himself as being some kind of Dutch adventurer. So, like, <laughs> you know, these places, Amsterdam's what, 1985 for the group, 1986, something like that? I think they claim 80, 85, oh, you're right. No, which do they claim? Because I know it's always, they split the hairs that Great Lakes is slightly older than them, but... Great Lakes wasn't in Toronto. Yeah. So they're like Toronto's oldest craft brewery because Great Lakes beat them by like eight months, but Great Lakes was originally in Brampton or something like that. I, you know, I look at it like this. If you survived for 37 years before selling out, I mean, good Lord. By the time they sold out, they had built a portfolio that included three speed, which is now the second best light beer in the world, according to the U.S. Beer Cup. Wow. Um, you know, it's pretty good. Barrel Age Double Tempest is like one of the most award-winning beers in Canadian history. Mm -hmm. I think it won the World Beer Award for Best Beer one year. Like That, that tracks. Um, it, it's very difficult to say that they had more to accomplish. Well, and the other thing is when they dropped that Crone system in and replaced the old brew house with like, what are those, 120s or 160s or something like that? Like... Those are industrial sized tanks. It's like, oh, I get it. We're we're looking for uh, you know, profits due to scale. We're looking at putting together numbers that look appealing to people who want to buy a very successful brewery. And that's fine. Like in a way, the ship had probably sailed when they left Bathurst. 
you know they yeah. any sense of like you know ragtag group of ne'er-do-wells sweating over the brew kettle you know the, the staff clearly are very skilled brewers but the business plan of the company shifted and that's fine like i'm not one of those guys who gets upset when a brewery decides they want to get big like that that's great you know that's one of the problems that you have with craft beer generally and the era that we've just come out of which let's say for the sake of argument was like 15 years like 2008 to 2023 um it's a capitalist business like the idea is to sell the thing in volume yeah it doesn't, it doesn't work any other way yeah like if if my option is to go and buy a can of three speed sometimes on sale at the lcbo check your website folks um or to buy like a five dollar tall can of some ipa with a hop i don't know about i was even going to say bellweiser like yeah. not a light beer but like a cold yellow beer like a thing of you know potentially middling quality that i'm not completely mm. aware of like it's very difficult to convince anybody of that especially if you have to go to a, like a tap room in a strip mall in the middle of nowhere and you have to drive there and you gotta like sit on an uncomfortable stool while you drink one beer because you can't drink more than one beer because you gotta drive back and also the music is chosen by somebody who has terrible taste in music and the entire room is just edison light bulbs and exposed brick and uncomfortableness and there's a really skeezy guy sitting next to you because he'd been a regular at a bar in the strip mall that closed and this is the next nearest place that serves alcohol yeah, and that bar would have been called something like occasions or gatherings or absolutely, and they had karaoke on Tuesdays. Absolutely, they did <laughs> for that city. It's just, you know, when I moved into this building across the street, there was a bar called the Lazy Lizard, and it was in the basement of a strip mall, which should tell you you're at the bottom of the world, really. Um, and it was part of the Toronto Dart League, and they did have karaoke on Tuesdays. Mm -hmm. fireplace smelled like a deep fryer that hadn't been cleaned in six months oh, oh how i miss it <laughs> <laughs> well i was talking with some guys the other day I'm trying to remember what bar it was they said it's gone now but it had gotten done um i'm trying to remember the name of the device but you know the thing you can run it off of a draft setup to recover off poured beer right and then it it literally like you've plumbed in and it it collects in a service vessel back in the cooler. And then that service vessel has lines. And I think they run off of um, what's it, you know, with the straw and the uh, a Venturi. So they're drawing the off poured beer back into the draft line at like a you know 10 to 1 ratio or whatever but so you recover your lost beer and it's completely illegal for obvious reasons <laughs> but that yeah the i can't remember which bar it was but it's like like you described like but it was a well-known entity in toronto and yeah they finally got done for recycling beer i think it was the brunswick but is the brunswick still open or are they closed now long since they're now a rexall Really? I've been in that area. I can't believe I missed that. Actually, no, it's not a Rexall anymore. Now it's a vintage clothing uh, retailer. Mm. Which, I mean, there are only two things you can become if you shut down a bar in Toronto. I was um, going to say an A&W or a cannabis shop. Yeah, pretty much. 
<laughs> and any Starbucks that shuts down is going to be a cannabis shop. Hey, the mushroom shops are on their way. I'm curious to see what happens with that. I'm sure everybody will have some really interesting afternoons. <laughs> there's there's a fun guy's mushroom at Queen and Coxwell, like so not far from my house. I got to tell you, 60 bucks a quarter, like it's a little bit more expensive than street, but not a lot. And it comes in these really nice Ziplocked bags. And I'll say this, the the fun guys at Queen and Coxwell. So part of the problem is it's like the early days of illegal dispensaries where you have to buzz to get in. And like nope. it, it still feels a little, yeah, I don't know, a little clandestine. There's well, a there's a great one in Kensington called Day Trip, I think is what it's called. And it's like I know, but it's like it looks like it could be uh, like an Ikea uh, display when you walk in, like nice shelving, good lighting, plants. The people are like nice and well dressed. The fun guys at Queen and Coxwell is nice, but the guy has a neck tattoo and I got a lot of tattoos, but neck tattoos are another level and so just it doesn't have quite the same shine you know when you go in you you're like oh yeah yeah you almost expect there to be one of those bob marley rugs hanging on the wall or whatever you know i i I don't think i think if you have a neck tattoo you're precluded from ever saying the following sentence your honor my client yeah exactly yeah yeah or um welcome to the uh annual shareholders meeting well, if you're part of the fun guy's board, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Our tattoo artist uh, calls any tattoo on the back of your hand or any tattoo on your neck a job stopper. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's about right. Yeah. One time I was in and we were looking at this hand and talking about like, oh, what could I do on the back of this hand that would kind of come out of the sleeve or, or do just do something totally different? And she was like, are you really ready for a job stopper? And I was like, I work for Canada Post. They cannot fire me. I am set. <laughs> you know, I, I'm always amazed by it. Like, you know, you walk into a cannabis dispensary. I'm shocked by how nice they are as a shopping experience. Some of them are like, it feels like you're almost in a car dealership. Like they're, they're plush. Well, I mean, some of the ones that like along the Danforth, they they have like display cases you have to look down into. It's like, "Hmm, is that a Rolex? (laughs) Yeah, no, that's it. It feels like a jewelry shop. Yeah. And like, you have to ask cause like you you can't handle it. God forbid. And so you have to ask and then, and then, and then they'll tell you, Oh yeah. yeah." And then it's like, Oh, oh, it's uh, it's pretty heady. It's pretty heady. It's like, yeah, is that one heady too? Yeah, that one's pretty heady. I'll have a, I think that's a Fred Armiston bit, isn't it? Fred Armiston has a bit about like, uh, oh, yeah, 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 check out this one. Yeah, yeah, this one. Oh, it's smooth. It's really heady. <laughs> My thing is when I go into a, a cannabis shop, I don't want to think the person selling me the cannabis owns any of the following. A Mexican poncho, a djembe, a didgeridoo or a hacky sack. Now, three of those four things are things that I do own. Yeah. But I don't want this guy selling me my weed to have that. (laughs) Do you have a, what's what's the one you, Mexican poncho, right? That's the one you think I don't have? Exactly. Thank you. Oh, no, no, no. I don't have a djembe anymore either. I only have two, sorry. I don't have a Mexican poncho. So you've given up the uh, polyrhythmic, drumming of africa 
Yeah, I can't remember what happened to that. I had one for a spell. I think I loaned it to somebody or something. That, that's about what would happen with a djembe eventually, I think. Yeah, and they're, yeah, I mean, they get wet and then they smell like goat, which isn't appealing. Yeah. I was just looking over my shoulder to see if my uh, didgeridoo was around. It is around here somewhere. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hang on. You know what that didgeridoo? Uh, you know what people say when you play the didgeridoo? Didgeridon't. Didgeridon't. <laughs> I can't tell whether you're making noise or whether that uh, blew out the speaker. Oh, yeah, no, that was noise. The dog does not like the didgeridon. The dog is saying didgeridon't. <laughs> She's saying in the name of everything sane and holy, didgeridon't ever again. What's the the Tom Waits line? A gentleman is a man who can play the accordion but doesn't. But doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I wanted to get a concertina for a while, but that uh, that that didn't happen. What? So that you can stroll through Italian restaurants? No, I was picturing it more like in a sea shanty kind of vibe. Oh, okay. Like as a sailor. <laughs> that might work. Uh, might be something. Ashbridge's <laughs> Bay with a funny hat. Well, so I have a friend who has a boat at the yacht club at Ashbridge's Bay, and he often will take me out sailing. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be fun if I could wear one of those black and white stripy shirts and like, uh, you know, capri pants or whatever you call it when you're a sailor, and just sit on the deck and play my concertina, <laughs> sing an old French sea shanty. But that sounds just fine. I think you'd be great. I think it'd be fantastic. But anyway, it didn't happen. By the way, do you know that concertinas are very expensive? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, at this point, when the, like I think about buying a musical instrument, I think to myself, is anything on Max sold? Uh, because I haven't looked at Max sold in ages. That's a really good, that, that is where you would find a concertina. And it would be a nice one. It'd be like a 1920s honer. And it'd be like, you could probably auction it for $6,000 and it's 60 bucks. Yeah, that's how I almost ended up with a bass trombone. I have no reason to own a bass trombone at this point in my life. Who, I think anybody has a reason to own a bass trombone. But it was it was pretty cool. Like, it was a good quality one. I uh, I have a trombone in here somewhere, too. Uh, <laughs> so, coming up in high school, and I know you know that we both were, were tromboners. Boners, yes. if you prefer. I don't know if I ever told you the story of my trombone in high school, but... Uh, there was all those, what was the brand? And they had the, the hard shell cases, the like the, the plastic compression molded ones. And they were real shiny and nice, but they were uh, they were student trombones. Well, Yamaha made something like that. Yeah, it wasn't Yamaha. I think I remember that. Anyway, there was a brand name. And anyway, we had about six or seven of those. And then uh, we had two or three that were in sort of like a faux tweeted kind of case and they were older, but they were fine. But again, they were still like, like student models. And then I found this one that was in this, like, I don't even know. It looked like pre-war kind of case. It was falling apart. I had to like regularly tape the case back together and stuff, but the trombone was a German made. I don't know what. And it was like, I think the patina was holding it together and there was like a ding on the end of one of the slide rods. And like, it was just a, a total mess and it was, it was dusty and dirty and I took it and I cleaned it and I re like, like, 
got the the you know the the the, the guy that goes down the slide the the little foxtail brush gung was coming out it looked like uh you know what you know the 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 pimple popping videos people are into or used to be i don't know if people are still into that i never was but it was like that the amount of stuff coming out of this trombone slide it was like a pimple popping video and i got it all nice and clean and it was one of the nicest instruments i've ever played the tone was sublime its playability once it was lubed back up was like just delightful it was amazing and uh, i played it all the way through high school and then obviously i couldn't take it with me so i left it but then years later a friend of mine's dad was like oh i got a trombone i'm not using why don't you take it but again it was a student model and i started playing it and i was like i I know i'm out of shape but i don't think i'm this bad and i realized after playing for a while i'm like it actually the construction of the instrument really does make a difference (laughs) it ain't just a tube with a horn on the end of it no i mean uh at some point during high school, I switched from like the basic model trombone to tenor and then bass, because in symphonic band, you need somebody who can play bass trombone. And I have big lungs, large torso, you know, and uh, like the, the sound quality was tremendous. Uh, we were in the IB program in high school. So I was music was one of my higher level subjects. And I'd end up doing the Rimsky Korsakov concerto uh, for trombone. Uh, as like my performance piece for the exam. And it was, you know, periodically you realize you're never going to get better at a thing. You know, like, okay, I reached the point that I'm going to be able to get to. And at the time there was a very popular trombone player called Christian Lindbergh, who's from Denmark. And he had a thing called the Motorcycle Concerto. Oh, wow. I don't know if I'm familiar with that somehow. Well, it involved triple tonguing and also humming while you were playing in order to get a differential sound between the um, tone that you were producing through the, the horn and the tone that you were producing as a, like a, kind of like a didgeridoo, like as a sub, you know. And I, I kind of looked at that and I went, that guy's not making a living and he's the best in the world. Maybe I'm not going to be a boner professionally. Did you watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine? No. Well, yes, yeah, so I've seen it. So there's a bit in it where... Uh, the the uh, the chief, who's you know this very straight edge. Of course, he's played yeah. by Brown. Or exactly, yeah, and uh, he's he's in a dither because uh, there's been a, a theft, and it's this world-renowned oboist who uh, he him and his husband had have have seen a number of times, and. Uh, he's going to personally deal with the case. And so him and Peralta are going to, to, to work the, the case together. And, and it, it turns out that the oboist was doing an insurance job. He was claiming the oboe because he's broke. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I decided not to be a trombone player and I decided on beer rating instead. Yeah. Hell, <laughs> you hit that one out of the park. <laughs> well, you... Swings and roundabouts. Yeah. I uh, I had a funny one with my high school music teacher in grade 11, grade 12. Actually, I had a teacher who her and I hated each other so much. That's why I stopped playing trombone. I possibly would have 
like gotten my own trombone coming out of high school and continued playing, but I hated her so much and she hated me so much. And I was a teenager. So, you know, we do stupid things. Um, but in grade 11, my high school music teacher was a guy who'd been uh, a studio uh, saxophonist, uh, played uh, soprano as well as uh, alto, alto and tenor. But uh, he, uh, he had a bit of a problem with the, with the drink and, uh, so had stopped working in jazz and become a teacher. Really, unfortunately, he continued uh, to have a problem with alcoholism be because it turns out it wasn't just exposure to the jazz cats that uh, were causing that. But uh, he told me towards the end of my grade 11 year, he said, uh, he was like, you know, Chris, you're not a natural musician. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> I'm curious where this conversation's going. He's like, but you've become proficient enough at trombone that if you wanted to, you could become a studio musician on the jazz circuit because studios are always looking for reliable horn players that can just show up and, and sit in a session. And he's like, you absolutely have the chops to, to do that. And he's like, I can, I can introduce you to some people when you graduate, like, let me know. I said, Oh, cool. All right. Thank you, sir. I'll, I'll give that some thought or whatever. Um, and then obviously had this experience with his other teachers. I'm out of here. But, uh, but I just love that. He was like, you're not a natural musician. And I'm like, Oh, thanks a lot. You are. I get it. Okay. I get it. <laughs> I'm working really hard over here. <laughs> yeah, we had a music teacher like that. Just about grade 11 as well. Our, our guy, um, he'd been a drummer on the jazz scene, and he was kind of an acid burnout. But he was he a was pretty good administrator for the music program, and he's a very good drummer. Like, you know, he, he would sit in and he'd play, and he'd be able to, like, intuitively explain what he wanted from the jazz ensemble, for example, like, just by gesturing. Mm. We're, we're all sitting there, and we're, like, we're listening to Parliament, and we're listening to... Earth, Wind, and Fire and like these horn sections, you know. And um, he decides that at an all-boys school, what we're going to do is cover uh, a whole new world from Disney's Aladdin. And we're going to do that in our assembly. And we're all sitting there like, uh, okay, we could do that. Why are we doing that? And it took him a while to explain it. And then he realized that uh, we were going to need a female vocalist from the girls' school down the street. Was that Havergal? Uh, BSS. Uh. So he's going to like forge a relationship between the two music departments so that we have a social life. And we didn't understand that he was trying to do us a solid. <laughs> so guys, yeah, trying to get you a date. Yeah, all, all boys' school, Slim Pickens. Yeah, it absolutely was. Do you have a memory? I want to get back onto beer, by the way. But do you have a memory? Because I think everybody, I was going to say our age, I think we're in the same zone, um, remembers yeah. at some point, I'm 1980. Yeah, me too. Okay, yeah, exactly the same age. Um, everyone I know who played in band in high school had the memory of the time that the teacher bought the score for the theme for Jurassic Park. And, uh -huh. and then you played it and went, oh my gosh, it sounds, I guarantee it did not sound the same, but it sounds the same as in the movie. Da, na, 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 na. And the horn, the French horns are coming. And oh, and you, you get chills playing that song 
it was the most delightful thing ever. Did you did you have this in your band experience? I'm not sure we had that one specifically, but anything John Williams has scored so I want to say simply, it's it's not like massively complicated music from a rhythmic perspective or anything. And if you're in a wind ensemble, it's going to be simplified down further. So it's we, we mostly did like uh, you know Ray Fun Williams, Percy Eldridge Granger, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Those are all ringing bells. Yeah. Did you ever do a song that was called Creed? It was this like really anthemic, but also kind of militaristic piece. I remember literally we learned it one time for the Remembrance Day assembly. Yeah. And there was like, you know, it starts with a kind of drum thing. And then the uh, the trumpets came and like, it, yeah, it felt like you were playing in a military band. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure we ever had that one. We did at one point have a wind ensemble piece called Gevorkna Fanfare. I don't think I know that. And it, it started out with like double tongue horns in unison. It's like kind of Finlandia esque. Um, oh yeah. Uh, so that kind of thing. But did you uh, ever do uh, the Great Gate at Kiev from the Pictures of the Gallery uh, piece? No, that's that it's um, um, what's it used in? It was used in something and everyone always thinks it's the theme from, but it, and it, the deal. And I remember our, our teacher told us it was my wife left, by the way, apparently high school band conversation, not, uh, not appealing to the missus. Um, you might have other things to do. <laughs> there's a point at the end and it's building, uh, this, this musical piece and so the deal was, he told us it would always, it had to be the last thing that the symphony played because the brass players would literally blow out their embouchures playing the part. I can't even remember what it was called when there was three Fs. Like there's like fortissimo is two, but then sometimes you would get a third one and it's like, you got to blow the hell out of this. And then after that, there was a crescendo. Oh, for <laughs> And it's like, oh, yeah. And I literally remember, I remember playing it for the band concert. And I think it was a device that he was using to just make us play harder. But thinking, oh, I need to literally ruin my mouth playing this song. And like we were done and I couldn't talk right because my like I just I had no muscle tone left in my mouth from having blown as hard as I did. It was into, and and again, thinking back, it probably sounded awful. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to say that, like, we had, uh, in addition to the bands, we had musicals every year. So you, the musicians would generally be in the pet band. And I forget whether it was How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying or whether it was Jesus Christ Superstar. But the lead trumpet player, uh, Mark, he, he dropped acid before the final uh, performance of it. And apparently in his score, uh, he had written in, in pen, high notes equal death, play death loud. <laughs> I'm not clear. <laughs> That's um, a hell of a note. All right, go for it, man. And he Do did. it. Do it. That's funny. Uh, hey, okay, hey, hey, so back to beer. Because my high school band, wasn't that delightful? Uh, it was all the didgeridoo's fault. No, we got there from a cannabis shop. How did we get there from a cannabis shop? I'm opening another beer, by the way. I'm out of PBR. Because you got high and you wanted to buy a concertina. That's why. I don't think I was high when I wanted to buy the concertina. I saw Steve Martin playing the concertina in Only Murders in the Building. And I thought, 
oh, concertina. All right. And then I started pricing out concertinas and I priced myself out of a concertina. Um, Extraordinarily deceptively difficult. I was at Uflecu in Prague and they had a wandering accordion player. Yeah. And I think he got through, I kissed a girl and I liked it. (laughs) Accordions are a whole different thing because you also have to be able to play the piano to play an accordion. Right. I, I just mean, need, I just want the chord buttons. Like he, he wandered over to the table and got somebody to play the chord buttons while he was doing the thing. And like the learning curve on that's got to be astronomical. It was terrible. Did you see the Weird Al movie, the one that Daniel Radcliffe was in? No, I keep meaning to. It's like Cocaine Bear. It's on the list, you know? Yeah, I got to see Cocaine Bear too. Uh, they were showing Cocaine Bear over at the Fox a couple well, months back now, I think. And I was like, oh, we got to go see that. We got to go see that. And then we didn't go see it. So I missed it. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Um, what's her name? Uh, she was the, the chick in the Lego movie. Uh, Elizabeth Banks. Yes. Thank you. Elizabeth Banks. She, she was one of the exec producers in addition to acting in it. It's like her movie. So I like her sense of humor a lot. Uh, no, I was going to say, what was I saying? Oh, about um, a movie that's like Cocaine Bear. Ah, it's gone. Um, back to cannabis shops. For 420. Three layers up. Yeah, okay. So I've got, I've got a feeder just over here. Literally, it's about 100 meters right over there uh, called The Fox. It's a single screen, old timey theater. Uh, it's, it was the first theater I ever went to that was licensed. And, okay. and all they had at the time was left field and collective arts. So it was like, yeah, like sign me up. Um, we don't go as often as we would like. And then obviously pandemic during the pandemic, every Thursday, Friday and Saturday, or maybe just Friday and Saturday, a staff member would come in and would fire up the popcorn maker and you could come and buy bags of popcorn to then take home and watch a movie at home. But with movie theater, popcorn genius. Anyway, for 420, except it was 421 because 420 was a Thursday. But for 420 on 421, they showed uh, Dazed and Confused. And uh, and so Eric and I were going to go watch it. So that day while I was at work, there's um, I think it's Spirit Leaf. It's a middling uh, uh, head shop. They're, they're nice. There are some guys with scruffy beards and dreadlocks. So, you know give or take but i walked in and actually it was one of the the really cute all american boys was working and uh, i'm sure he's canadian by the way but uh but i said i go oh uh you know hey what can i help you with i'm here to buy weed um i said uh the fox is showing generic question yeah can i help you with something yeah i mean sell me some weed, man. Uh, I know they want to know if I want an edible or a pre-roll or flour. I get it. But anyway, I go, yeah. Um, the Fox is playing dazed and confused tonight. And he's like, Oh, wicked. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I go, uh, so what I want is I want to buy a pre-roll, a really stupid big joint. Like, like when you go to the cigar shop and you just buy the biggest cigar they physically have, like, that's what I want. And he was like, okay, come with me. And he's like, uh, these pre-rolls here all contain, what was the word he used? Something. It wasn't distillate. I know what that is, but it was another word. And I went, okay. And he goes, they're really strong. And I was like, cool. And he goes, 
this one's birthday cake. And I was like, birthday cake. That sounds awesome. He's like, but it's not as strong as this one, which is smaller. And it tastes like, I can't remember what. And he's like, but this one is crazy. And I was like, you know what? Give me both. So we took them and we had the crazy one first. And it's in Pulp Fiction. Right. It's a little bit more, but it's a madman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, and this one was in, like, we didn't finish it. I think I left probably a quarter of the joint and just chucked it and went in and watched it. And then adorably went in and we went into the, th- you know, get some beers and went into the theater and sat down and we looked around and about half of the crowd we, we were weirdly in the middle of the age for watching the movie yeah, because about half the crowd was older than us. Not by a lot, but like, I don't really identify as Gen X, like 80 were right in the middle, but like, I always kind of think of myself on the younger side of that, but like people more like my sister's age, but then people like there was a gap and then people about 10 years younger than us and younger. And the first time McConaughey, walked into the camera shot the entire place clapped yeah yeah. and every time he delivered any line everybody clapped and laughed and like it was like a mcconaughey love fest i was like this is amazing and i was crazy high so so good at it i mean there's this brilliant shot that Linklater gets as they're walking into the arcade and it's like mcconaughey in the yes yeah long-haired kid and pink but I mean, it's like these are the good guys, and it's framed as though these are the protagonists of the film in a really straightforward and completely unmissable sort of way. And he also, like, he has this great line in it, which is where he's talking about his car. He's like, "It's got Edelbrock in tights, man. Blow your doors clean off." Yeah. <laughs> And he's teasing the other guys like, I've seen this. I've seen this. You can order that off the back page of the Archie comics. <laughs> it's so good. But so you know the deal with that? He wasn't even supposed to be a talking extra. He was hired as a background actor. And they kind of liked the look of him. And they were like, can we give you a line? And he was like, yeah, all right. And so they gave him a line and he just nailed it so hard they were like, okay, hang on a minute. And like, so Linklater was like literally rewriting the script on the fly and was like, oh, let's actually, oh, what if we did that? Okay, they, in this scene, try doing this. And like got him to do a bit and was like, perfect. He ended up becoming like the, the talisman of the movie, yeah. but he was hired as just a background player and he was just so good. They were like, we can't not use this guy. He's perfect. <laughs> I love the, like, how impressionable everybody else is in the movie because he's the only character that has graduated and has a job. Yeah. Him and Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck's in a bit of a weird zone. Oh, O'Banion, sure. Yeah. 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 Because he intentionally failed so he could paddle the kids the second year. Well, it's Texas in the 1970s, you know, there's not a lot to do. Um, but with McConaughey, there's like the, uh, oh, you know, I'm working for the city, man, puts money in my pocket. Yeah. And later in the movie, uh, the kid, I forget the kid's name, Mitch. Yeah, 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 Mitch, yeah. Trying to buy something at a convenience store, it's like probably he's getting a bottle of whiskey or something. It, no, they're at the arcade, and the black guy's playing pool, and he goes, hey there, son take this money over there, get me a six pack at the shop, bring it on back. And he's like testing him. And yeah, so he goes in and he just replicates it. Yeah. yeah. 
puts money in my pocket. Well, here's some more money. Money in your pocket. Exactly. (laughs) It's, I think we snuck in to see that in grade seven. Is that right? Is that like 1992? Uh, It was the, I think it was the 20th anniversary when we saw it. So it was probably 93. So, like, I saw that at Canada Square up at Young and Eglinton. Yeah, yeah. A bunch of UCC kids who would, I guess we probably had a Friday where we didn't have to dress in uniform or something. Yeah, it was Civvy's Day. Yeah. yeah. So we actually get into the movie because we're 13, you know. I uh, I can't remember when I, I didn't see it when it came out. I don't think I saw it in theaters. I think I saw it on, oh, no, that's not true. I think I did. I think I saw it at Scarborough Town Center. Yeah. You've yeah, I think seen. I did, actually, now that I say that. Um but when I rewatched it, I was revisited with the memory that kind of grade nine, grade 10, Chris, yeah. my two major role models at that point in my life were Slater from Dazed and Confused. And, and <laughs> I don't even know what you're saying right now, man. I don't know what's up. And Serial Killer from Hackers, <laughs> who's uh, Matthew Lillard. <laughs> right, hack the Gibson, hack the planet. Yeah, that was literally who I was like. If I could be anybody, it would be somewhere between the, those two guys. So you chose the, the the stoner and the really nerdy guy. Really nerdy, and I think he was straight edge in the movie. I don't think that was stated, but I don't think there was any. I don't think they did any drugs or consumed any alcohol in the movie Hackers. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Was there drugs? There might have been a drug scene, and and uh, Johnny Lee Miller did it with uh, Angelina Jolie, but right, because of course that's Angelina Jolie. Yeah, I was trying to remember who it was. That very that. very pivotal scene for me as a young fella when he's having the dream, but they're staging it, so it seems. And she walks into his bedroom, and she's got that uh, mod style motorcycle leather jacket on, and she unzips it, and of course she doesn't have anything on underneath. And as like a 13-year-old or whatever, I was like, oh my gosh, like every hormone in my body has just hit full capacity right now. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, there, there are, you know, there are things that'll do that to you. Yep. Johnny Lee Miller was great. Hey, we're still not talking about beer, but that's okay. Those were great movies. They were probably drinking Lone Star. Probably. Probably. I oh man. I love the bit in uh the end of the party bit from uh uh Dazed and Confused when people are leaving and Parker Posey is like can hardly keep upright and they're like falling all over each other. And I was just like yeah, yeah, I, I don't do that anymore, and I'm I'm not upset about that, but man, that looks real fun. <laughs> Some of that, that was mostly in university. <laughs> yeah. We, like, uh, you know, the problem with going to a fairly strict all-boys school is there wasn't a lot of chance to do that kind of socializing. Yeah, I had a weird one because I split my time. I was all over the, the map in high school. As discussed, yeah. I was in the band. So you're in band and symphony and jazz and you have class. And then I improved, like I did improv games. And so it was in that and a bit of drama. I think we did two productions. I didn't do a lot of them. Um, so I did that, but I also played rugby. Yeah. So I had that group too, but I was also the church boy going to youth group every Thursday night. Right. So I had these like, 
it was like a Venn diagram where it didn't actually touch. <laughs> I just had three circles. <laughs> when you think back on that, because it's like I had a lot of similar kind of experience, you know, a lot of different responsibilities and all that. Um, when you think about the amount that you're scheduled now, and you think about the extent to which you were scheduled in high school, doesn't it seem a little daunting? Yeah, and I mean, so because I work with, I haven't done a lot of stuff with teenagers recently. I do a bit of work coaching with rugby, but mostly I do, I work with younger kids. But yeah. uh, when I've been, because I've done these trips, right? We do these learning and service trips and we take kids from the, the neighborhood to other places. And like, so the trip itself, that's neither here nor there, but we try and do like a year's worth of work leading up to it, partially fundraising, partially team building. And even though, like I look back, I think back and I'm like, well, I had improv two nights a week. I had rugby training two nights a week. Youth group was on Thursday, but it was later. It was 730. So there would be days. I remember I literally went to youth group one day in my rugby kit covered in mud with blood on my shirt because I had to get to youth group and I just left rugby training, got on a bus and went to church. Um, But it never felt difficult. Like I always, I also still was able to hop on my bike and go hang out with friends and smoke cigarettes outside of a donut shop or whatever. And I look at kids now and we're trying to like, you know, we'll say, okay, in three weeks, can we meet for 90 minutes to do a, team building thing oh which day oh uh like saturday oh i've got lacrosse i've got equestrian i've got junior debate like everybody's got something and i'm like guys it's saturday like what are you what are you doing with yourselves uh i have this pet theory that mostly people don't actually have a whole lot of stuff on but they like to pretend that they do because Mm. there's nothing more satisfying than not doing things I think for our age, you get a lot of that. These kids are 100% doing like they go. Yeah. They're doing things before school and then they go to school and they're doing things after school. And I'm like, what the hell, man? Like, No, I mean, it's uh, it's just real odd. Uh, I remember like, you know, you'd finish school. I think we had time to go and get a cup of coffee somewhere in like the St. Clair village. Yeah. Yeah. Walk back. Then he had banned. And like sometimes he'd stay at school until like nine o'clock at night doing homework just because it was easier than going home. Because it's one of those situations where you're so overscheduled that you don't want to have a conversation about what you've done that day because it's eating into the things that you need to accomplish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, not it's a, bonkers. Not an ideal way to live. Well, it's funny. I mean, my son, Ben, he's going to be 15 in two weeks. And so Ben has uh, a theater program on Friday nights. On Mondays and Wednesdays, he's coaching with me, coaching the little guys. On Tuesday and Thursday, he has his own training. Uh, He didn't join the band at school this year, but he wants to next year. So that'll be there. He he also plays not just club rugby, he plays school rugby. So during that season, he also has that. And, and then as well, at the weekend, he has games or tournaments and church stuff. And it's like, he's not as bad as some of the kids I know, but I, like even him, I look at him like, dude, when do you do your homework? <laughs> Top secret, he doesn't. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of them do. Um, I don't know. 
What kind of beer are you drinking anyway? This is a juicing. That's all I got. I, I ran out of PBRs and I have two or three of these. And actually, spoilers, I'm going to be jumping on the pod with Ben tomorrow night, his podcast. So I need to save at least one of these because it's one of the few Hazy Boy beers that he will accept. Uh, well, he does, he does not like New England IPAs. Well, here's the thing. Like, if you could get the same New England IPA all the time, it would be acceptable. I mean, juice is a one-off. It's it's not it's a seasonal, right? It's not like one of their quarter lineup. Yes, but it's a long seasonal. I think they make it for summer. So, like, you get it kind of in May, and it peters out in September or something, I think. Fair enough. But, you know, the issue with shelf stability is such that that beer is not going to be the same two months in that it is three weeks in. Oh, yeah, no, like, it's risky business buying it from the LCBO. Like, this one is packaged June 6th, so yeah. it's six weeks old. Yeah. Five, five and change. Uh, now the good news is my local LCBO has, as many do all of the beers in a walk-in cooler, but that's only the beer that's on sale because they also have a storage room, which is not refrigerated, which is problematic. I never thought about that, but you're absolutely right. That thing's a Potemkin village. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's kind of window dressing. Once the beer is shelved, it gets refrigerated again. But until then, it's just in the back storage room. Oh, man. And I know that because I've been in that storage room and it ain't refrigerated and there's beer everywhere. Yeah, I always found that interesting. For a while, I got to do tastings for uh, Great Lakes. Oh, that's hard living. Oh, it's not great, man. I I did that when I worked for Double Trouble. Yeah, because you get like a four-hour shift at the LCBO and even if nobody walks in and nobody's interested... You got to stand there looking chipper. Wait, so you, were you doing front of house or back of house tasting? Because I think we're talking about two different things. Front of house mostly. Yes. So I was doing back of house tasting, which is you go in to educate the staff about the beer. It's the worst. It's free. So the front of house, you have to pay. Like that's a that's a thing. And, and, and I mean, like you say, it's I bet it's murder. Like, especially if they give you some random weird beer. Oh, take the ghosts. People love a ghost. Go ahead and explain why this beer is salty. Um, But no, I had to do staff education once. So you're doing the same thing, except you're in the break room. Yeah. And so you're standing there and you're all chipper. And like you've walked around the front and they introduce yourself to all the staff. Hey, how you doing, staff? My name's Chris. I got some interesting beers. You might like to have a sip. Come on back when you're on break and we'll do a little tasting. So I'm back there one time. And so I was the one, I think it was like in Oakville or somewhere. And uh, there was this kid who was full time, but like, you know, 20 soaking wet. And, uh, and he was really keen and he's like, Oh, tell me more about this. And so I'm like, we're drinking some beers and talking about brewing methods. And I don't know what, you know, having a real, the kind of conversation that actually you're really hoping to have. And this woman walks in, she's staff. And uh, I feel like the uniforms changed a bit, but at the time, I don't think they had gendered shirts. I think they just had a shirt and they weren't flattering on anybody. Like they, they weren't good for dudes or chicks. They were just bad in general. And I just remember it was like so boxy, but she also had it tucked into her pants 
And you know those glasses where the arms come out and then they dip down and they connect to the bottom of like big square lenses, but they were smoked. So they were like dark at the top, fading to lighter at the bottom, like smoked. And she had the chains coming off of it. And she had that 80s puffy at the front, like lanky down the back haircut. And she stank of Demoria cigarettes. Yeah. So mental picture. So she walks in. And I go, hey, how are you doing? And she goes, I'll be doing a lot better in eight months, four days, and three hours. And I went, retirement day? And she went, it can't come soon enough. And then like walked off. And I was like, okie doke. <laughs> See that movie with her spree decor. It, uh, she uh, did not care about craft beer. No. <laughs> Who does really <laughs> maybe she does now maybe she retired and she turned over a new leaf it's entirely possible mm. by the way i wanted to say speaking of uh hazy ipas have you had uh is it two yeah two loons the ipa not yet no it's uh, jason's, jason's? yeah you need to get some of that in you right. double double quick it's um so like juicing mm-hmm delightful aromatic very tropical very peachy and and like this is the ben johnson mark like it just doesn't have enough actual physical bitterness there's not enough alphas in there you know what i mean it's too smooth it's too juicy but uh the the two loons I, i actually talk about this a lot new england ipa ostensibly the the um formative beer for that was Hetty Topper. Yeah. Hetty Topper's pretty bitter. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not just aroma hops. Like they I guarantee you they were putting bittering hops in that beer. I want to say it's like 70 BU or something. Yeah, yeah. It's significant. But uh so the 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 two loons, the thing that it, it reminded me a lot of is uh high ally from Cigar City. Okay. Yeah. Slightly cedary kind of note to it. Totally. Uh, and like the bitterness is touching on sticky. Like it's almost resinous. It's nice. But with that really tropically cloudy thing, it's, it's good. Well, I'll give that a shot. Yeah. I'm curious what they do with a three barrel brew house, but. Uh, is that you know, what he's using? Well, no, cause he's got the two major brands uh, contracted. Yeah. And then I think another skew. But uh, the Brock Street location, they bought the brew house from Amsterdam, the uh, the Longos location. Right. Which is like a real small brew house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm hoping they haven't undershot it, but at the same time, like, they're in the old Malabar costume warehouse, so, you know. I thought he was up at Stockyards. Uh, no, that's Shacklands. Got it. Um, yeah. or something. Okay. I thought Jack Lance was his. He was just an employee at Jack Lance. I think that there was a there was a miscommunication about the achievable goals that the partners in the business thought they could uh, manage. No fooling. Yeah, like selling beer. You see, uh, Five Paddles just reopened under new ownership. Didn't even know they were for sale. Oh, yeah, they've been for sale for about a year. Well, when I Googled it, I discovered... So, obviously, I know Little Beasts is, and that's 
awful and that that's just a giant mess but i was aware of that but five paddles was also for sale and somebody else was also they were like there's three breweries for sale in term right now and i was like huh, how about that <laughs> Well, you know, the problem is that, like, Oshawa is not a terribly sophisticated market. It's challenging. It's called the Dirty Schwa for a reason. I mean... I love Five Paddles. I didn't get in there nearly enough recently, but, man, that that brewery had just the right vibe for me. Well, it's nice. And, I mean, like, the, the idea that uh, you had a bunch of different cooks in the kitchen meant that you did have variety, but at the same time, they were also trying to keep... Last time I was there, like five or six different yeast varieties alive at once because they had so much stuff they wanted to do. I think that's a hard way to do business. Um, like if you're thinking about running a brewery with a lot of people, potentially the only successful model in Ontario is together we're bitter. Yeah. Which I should get back to. I always liked that a lot. Yeah. I was just telling somebody, um, Frig, I can't remember who it was. I was having a conversation like literally yesterday and uh, they were like, it's so funny. This is, this is actually hilarious. They said, uh, Oh, I know exactly who it was. It was uh, my buddy, Matt. He's one of the coaches. He coaches U10 with me. Mm -hmm. And uh, Oh man, actually I got to, I got to back the story out just slightly more, by the way, we're getting late. I assume you don't have anywhere you have to be. Yeah. All right, cool. Um, It's for the evening. So. I upgraded my Zoom back to Pro, so I don't have any time limits, so we're fine. Uh, Our limit is, oh no, I was going to say five gigabytes, but that's only on cloud. I've just got the limit of my drive, which is like a terabyte and a half, so we're fine. Um, We were were talking. We we had a tournament yesterday over at Woodbine Beach. Beautiful, lovely. Oh, so good. And then we go back to the clubhouse, sitting on the patio, having some beers. And uh, so yeah, my buddy Matt goes, uh, the classic. He goes, ah, it's just, I feel like every time I go to a craft brewery, it's just, it's all hoppy IPAs. Like, I know, man, I know, I know. So I said, you know, things are changing. And he's like, well, like where in the area? So he's a beach guy, right? He goes, where in the area, where am I going to go get something that isn't just, you know, just the, the, the hot bomb. I said, buddy, you are geographically closer to at least the best brewery in the country and maybe in the continent than almost anybody else. I was like, turn right on Coxwell, stop at Girard. You're done, man. You will, you will not find a hop driven (laughs) beer aside from maybe one, everything else. They they have hops because they're supposed to, but they're balanced and the, a lot, a lot of them are loggers and you're going to be very happy there. And I was like, and dude, you must've been to left field. And he's like, Oh yeah, no, no. I like left field. It's just, it's just kind of hard to get to. I'm like, yeah, no, I get that. I get that. You know, you got to walk into it, whatever. And then I said, and what about Rorschach? You go to Rorschach? And he's like, yeah, I've been there a couple of times. They got a lot of, I'm like, yeah, I know they do a lot of IPAs, but they do a lot of other things. Like it's a big menu. There's a lot of beers. Nice lager is very good. They got that one that's got Shikawasu in it. Yeah. Yeah. They did. Did you, um, uh, I, I, I screwed myself up one time. I, I totally misread. I didn't misread. I read exactly what the words were, but I misunderstood what those words meant. Um, they, they had a beer. So uh, Rorschach does a beer called Hyreth, 
which is like a pale lager. Yeah. And it's really, really good. And I don't know why it isn't back yet, but it's summer beer. They're like, oh, we only brew it in the summer. And I drink it by like the flat in the summer. Like PBR falls out of my fridge when Hyareth is around because it's so good. And, uh, and I love it. But anyway, I was in, this was a month and a half ago, maybe. And I was like, oh, is Hyareth in it? No, Hyareth's not in it. All right. I went, oh, I said, it's, it was called Dewey Mountain Lager. And some mountain lager. And I, I, I associated it. I thought it was a light lager. I thought they were talking about like the Rocky Mountain cold or like they were replicating a Coors Light. And I was like, yeah, I just want a cold yellow beer. Just give me six of those. No, no, no. Mountain Dew. That's what they were referencing. They were referencing Mountain Dew. And I got to tell you, that beer tasted like Mountain Dew. Well, yeah. I mean, they, they're very good at doing that thing. I don't like Mountain Dew. <laughs> no, I was fucking mad about it one time when he was doing the smoothie beers because they were in fashion for a bit, and they're not doing them as much anymore. Because yeah, not sad to see those gone. Well, no, but the thing is, we were talking about recipe design and how do you come up with the the fruit blends that you're going to use in your beers? Like, it must take a lot of research to figure out what's going to go with what. And he said, "I look at what they're doing in booster juice, and then I do that." <laughs> Literally copying stuff from their menu. Seems fair. Yeah, well, it exists, you know. Um, we we did a collab with them last year, I guess, two years ago, called Fancy Lads. It was a lemon sherbet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I picked up a lot of that. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I, I think I'm going to try to get Fancy Lads back into the market. I don't think it's going to be the lemon sherbet one. Uh, see, we, we envisioned it as a series of different cartoon characters. Okay. So lemon Lad, who was on the last one. And the next one's Peanut Butter Boy. So I have an idea for a 1890s cookie-inspired Toronto-centric um, peanut butter beer. Yeah, I was thinking just even as you said that, like everyone immediately goes, oh, it's a peanut butter stout. And I go, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know people do that. People do that. I would like to see drive like a biscuity malt with the peanut butter flavor yeah now now we're back into now we're cooking again what i want to do is, is use uh toasted oats like i want to get like some kind of golden naked oat and then toast it so you get additional flavor i don't you think i don't think it would screw with the fermentability that much i mean i don't think it would in general and certainly probably not at the level of uh like percentage you're talking about like that that's not going to be 50 percent of the grain bill or something no god help you it'd be really expensive uh you know for years i only ever saw naked oats written down mm -hmm. like in a in a beer recipe or somebody's describing their beer and because sometimes you would also see flaked oats mm -hmm. written down I always read that <laughs> as naked <laughs> rhymes with flaked. And I literally one time, I can't remember who it was. I asked, I was like, um, and I hadn't like the, the penny hadn't dropped yet. Like it wasn't like I was aware of the other and I was choosing naked. I was just like, it's naked. What, what is a naked oat? What does that even mean? And I asked somebody, I said, what's a naked oat? And they were like, do you mean naked? And I went, I, yeah, that's exact. And, and also thank you for answering the question. Got it. <laughs> Isn't English a funny old language? 
<laughs> I, I, you know, I was explaining earlier today to the students about fuggle hops. Right. I think I said to them, and it's a fun word to say. Go That's ahead, right. walk down the street saying "fuggle" to yourself. Yeah. Don't let anybody judge you. No, no, it's it's fantastic. I do love a fuggle. Yeah. <laughs> um, that lemon sherbet beer you're talking about. So that was, correct me if I'm wrong, this was a, a lemon-driven, there was vanilla, or vanilla? No, lactose. Lactose? Lact- lactose. Yeah. Was there vanilla too? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Matt controlled the dosing on that, so we didn't see how much went in, but it's it's there. So literally, I think I bought it one time. I was, they were still, I think, I don't know if they still have the side uh, retail window, if it's still operational, but it was a few weeks ago was at the side retail window. And uh, I, I think I was buying some higher F and then I saw this a fancy lad and it said like brewed in collaboration. And I, well, that's interesting. And I read the description and I went, well, I'll give it a shake. <laughs> and so I, I, I think I literally bought one yeah. and, uh, and then I had, and I went, Oh, cause the thing is, conceptually i don't think i had a problem with it conceptually what i think i had a problem with was whether or not it could like could be pulled off whether or not it worked and it was so good and i tend not to like i I don't like i was saying to you earlier when we were planning this i don't really like sour beers particularly myself that's just not a thing i get down to um i don't love lactose driven beers with the exception of milk stouts like a milk stout i'll roll with but otherwise a lot of the time i'm like actually the times i'm happiest with a lactose driven beer is when you can't taste the lactose in it <laughs> the thing is it's, it's always a question of degree right like um when people are designing stuff i, th- I think they're at a disadvantage especially if you're a young brewer because you think that whatever the secret ingredient is, it has to be the focus of the thing. Now, right. you put on the label, I, I, I said this to Black Bellows years ago, because they had an elderflower saison or something. And it's just like, okay, if you put elderflower on the label, I need to be able to taste it. It needs to be really obvious. And if you say lemon sherbet, I mean, it's not really like, you can't put that ingredient in. You're replicating another flavor profile. So I think the longer you're around and the more context you have for how flavors have developed in beer, the better shot you have at creating something that is moderately subtle and that can actually accomplish that end. Because, you know, you like we're very skeptical of lact- lactose. I don't really like lactose in beer. I don't really like fruit puree in beer. I, you know, vanilla, sure. I mean, I did that a long time ago. But um you know, if you can get all those things to work together and you make it sort of more than the sum of its parts without being overwhelming, it's really good. I mean, you have to have a healthy respect for the historical portion of it where, like, you don't want to just make something that's only fruit puree. Right. Because at that point, it's not really beer. I mean, that's even kind of getting into what happens with New England IPAs, where it's like, yeah, I get it. It's a malt fermented beverage that's carbonated but really what we're doing here is we're making a a hop not quite a tea but yeah like a hop extraction that we're slightly offsetting with some malt 
and carbonating. Yeah. But like what you're drinking is it's hop juice. And I mean, I'm not using that derogatorily, but that's what it is. Yeah. And like at some point, the fashion for that is going to fall away. Um, one of the things you have to remember if you're a young brewer is that you're brewing for an audience of like a, a diverse audience of people. Just satisfying your own ego because you're playing with the ingredient that's satisfying, which it is. It's not a good sales strategy. It's not like a, it's going to work out in the long term for you. Well, I mean, the other thing that you brought up and and actually like referencing the beer that you guys did with Rorschach specifically, I, I assume it wasn't iterated out, but it was just the reality of a good idea. So somebody who had some knowledge and some understanding of what they wanted to actually do, meeting with a skilled brewer who was like, I can figure this one out. Like we can, we can get there. We don't have to make seven versions of this before we, we, we land on it, but with like a beer that you want to actually make. So like juicing, yeah. juicing has been iterated. Sure. You know, the first time I had it, it didn't taste wildly different, but for a little while there, Sam was tweaking dials. You know what I mean? Not in a way that like, oh, that was bad and we have to fix it, but in a way that like, we can do this better. Like we can, we can adjust this. We can, we can get somewhere else with this. And, uh, and, and iterating beers out like that, especially if it's something that you actually want to, again, like what you made with Rorschach, delicious and delightful. Are they going to make it again? I, like you say, maybe once or something, maybe down the line, maybe the, you'll do a different one with them. But like, that's not a beer that's going to land in their portfolio. And that that's fine. But what you do get is exactly like you say, like you're like, someone's like, oh, I'm going to make this um, IPA and I'm going to dump, you know, eight liters of mango puree into it. And then they yeah. do and you taste it and you're like, what? what was the thing that made you decide on that volume of mango puree? It's like, Oh, well it's, it's the size of the bucket, <laughs> you know? And it's like, Oh, so not experience at all. <laughs> like, uh, I, you know, it, it's always difficult when you have that because like the, some of the best beers in Ontario are those iteratively developed things like bone shaker started out as a hops every five minute Amarillo only. It was, it was a knockoff of 60 minute. Yeah. I remember you and I were at the brewery the first day it was ever brewed and Bartle was brewing it. And yeah. Ian was like, dude, you have to stand on the platform and just keep throwing hops in every couple of minutes. Yeah. I mean, just crazy. Um, what I will say is like, you're very lucky if you get a brewer who can realize a vision that you have. Like I, I did a collab beer last year with Spearhead called Dragon Slayer. It was an ESB, and it was based on a beer that I tried in London in 2018. John Keeling was retiring from Fuller's, so he'd made a 1972 version of the ESB. Mm. Went back and found the recipe and figured out how to do it so it was authentic to the original ESB recipe for Fuller's. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there going, we could recreate that. Nobody's really doing an ESB anymore. Um... And I, you know, I put it together from memory and through, you know, various things I'd read about Fuller's ESB in the day. And I sent it to uh, Jacob and Thomas at Spearhead. And they were like, this is what we think we should do. And, you know, they were kind enough to make some tweaks based on recommendations that I had from context that they didn't have 
you know, but I was able to explain why I was making the changes that I was making to the thing that they'd come up with. Like it, it doesn't need that much color correction. We need to use, you know, authentic English hops. Yeah. And when it went out to the, you know, because Spearhead sends beer to a lot of people on Instagram. And when it went out, uh, there was like not a dry eye in the house. Everybody's just, I remember when beer tasted like this. Oh, God. Right. And it was just delightful watching, because um, Thomas had retired, I guess. Jacob was in, in charge. Like, he's a very young brewer, but he had, like, all the technical part of it down. Like, he understood why we were doing the things we were doing, and some of that was communication beforehand. But I think he just has a knack for it. And you like to see people, um, especially, like, younger people who don't have historical context for stuff, kind of um, amalgamated into their experience. Mm. Take it on board. I remember a story years ago now um from mary beth and uh she was brewing a beer so ron was still like five days a week active brewing at the ground at the time and uh but she was doing a a collab beer it was like uh i can't even remember what the thing was it was like a, a you know a female brewed kind of thing her and somebody else and they had this idea. I think they were trying a scotch ale and she wanted to get some kettle caramelization going in the boil. And in doing that, she got a little gun shy. Something had happened and they were worried about something. I can't even remember what the, the details of the story were, but she was she wasn't quite freaking out, but she was like, eh. and, and and she said, oh, and then and then my dad came in for work. Yeah. And I said, oh, can you check this? Because I'm worried about like X and Y. And he literally like dipped his finger and went, yep, nope, that's fine. That'll work. And then was like, you might want to change this, but you're good to go. And it's like, at that point in her career, she didn't have that, that, you know, years of experience. And he did. (laughs) Literally, he just... Finger in and went, nope. And, and like, it's it's worked. You know, it's not finished beer. But just at this point in this process, and you're worried about these two things, yeah, no, it's fine. It's good. Carry on, you know? And just having that, uh, you know, that, that, that level of experience uh, allows you to do things where you can – you can take an idea and actually shape it in your head and be like, Oh, we'll, we'll do it like this. And, and like, I'll, I, I can already identify what the pitfalls might be and how we're going to get around that. You know, I still have a thing. I don't know why, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I haven't seen it. Somebody did it. I don't know why no one's done this. I want to make a Baltic Porter. That's root beer. So Oh, that's a that's a tap line killer. That's you know. Oh yeah, you couldn't serve it on draft. It's got to be in bottle. You you torch any draft line you put that through, but and and small bottles like three thirties, just a little guy. But all your regular, you know, wintergreen and sarsaparilla or whatever, but in a Baltic porter because Baltic porters already hit into that cola range, and if you can crank up more of those kind of medicinal herbs, we're dancing. Yeah, it's not bad. I like it. Nah, nobody wants to make it. Well, I can understand why. Yeah. Time 
time consuming and very expensive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, plus at this point in history where people are like, we have a new low-cal 90, 90 calorie IPA. I'm like, why don't you? Oh, I've got an 8.5% lager if you're interested. <laughs> and it's black. It's black as night. <laughs> it's like herbs. <laughs> yeah. Also, one of those uh, herbs is considered a carcinogen in California. So can't sell it there. Drink Diet Coke, you're fine. <laughs> we consume way worse carcinogens um hey we should maybe shut this down i got a dog to walk it's almost 10 30 that's fair enough but let's speak generally just for a second you know that iterative process that we've been talking about that's fantastic but not all re- all the breweries that exist go through that i mean a lot of people they just walk up to a kettle and they throw some hops in there and they expect you to pay a premium for it and on a monday night i don't feel like doing that on a Monday night, I feel like drinking Pabst. PBR. A beer that, if the can is to be believed, has been made the same since, what was the year? 18, it's on here somewhere. There's so many words. 1844. I want you to just understand one thing about this. The subtext. This is the original Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. Nature's choicest products provide its prized flavor. Only the finest of hops and grains are used. Selected America's Best in 1893. 1893, which, by the way, they'd been making it for 49 years at that point. Yes. So they'd had some time to develop it iteratively. I, I suspect there, there might have been some iteration. Yeah. Except, uh, all no, I mean, the thing with beer is it's always iterative because you have to work with what you have. Yeah, this yeah. is that, that, old, that old yarn we always used to spin about, like, uh, winemakers have good years and bad years. Brewers make the same beer every year, regardless of what the crop looked like. That's the brewing challenge. But that said, I, I, I feel like in 1893, I'm sure they were adapting for the, the, the crop yield that year or whatever, but also nobody had the capacity to have one from 1892 and then compare with any level of accuracy. <laughs> well, not only that, but if you go to the website here, legitimately, it will give you no additional information. Like the American website, or it does not even give you the alcohol percentage. <laughs> That's actually funny. It's funny. We didn't really talk. We didn't really get into the PBR and I'm not drinking it now, but one of the things I've always appreciated, A, I don't really get any corn in it. I think it's all malt. I think it's extract based. But I think I think it's an all malt beer, which is for its price point impressive. Yeah, two thirty five for a tall can, ten fifty for a six pack at the LCBO. That's what I just. This is it. Hey, have you had the blue one, the the higher proof one? It's like five point no. nine or whatever. And, you know, there are only so. I'll go so far, but only so far. I feel like that one's a little performative. Well, it's the Laker race of that genre, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Labatt ice you could get in Quebec and it was like 10.2%? Yeah. I remember like I would come back from university on the train and I would stop in Montreal or I'd be on the way back to university and, you know, I'd have a, like a room on the train and uh, like a sleeper cabin, sleeper cabin. Yeah. Wow. It was cheaper than flying. Plus, you know, I quite like looking at different parts of New Brunswick. Uh, And you'd sit there thinking, well, I might need provisions for the train. And I looked at that, but I never bought one. Yeah. I remember I, I got a, 
what was the depth in Montreal in sort of the early aughts that everybody talked about it was like you go to montreal and the only two things you have to do uh palooza it was called debt palooza and yeah. uh and i think i'm saying that right and then and then you go to duty sale and that was it that was literally all there was to do in montreal at the time if you asked a beer geek in 2003 or something like that but uh i went to that debt i think the statute of limitation has been uh exceeded uh the owners of Castro's were like, buy, I think it was a thousand dollars worth of beer, put it in the trunk, whatever you want, and we'll sell it at the bar. We'll just peel the label, the the price tag labels off of it. I went, all right. So we did that. That was fun. But I bought myself some stuff at the same time. And the box that they gave me to take the beer out in i didn't even look at right as my beer was in this like they'd cut the top off little box put that in the car loaded up a thousand dollars worth of uh i can't even remember there was due to sale in there there was some other stuff and uh loaded that all into the car there was a unibrew that you couldn't get in ontario and i don't know what and uh and then drove home and uh and when i got home i took my box out and i looked and i was like Oh, it's a Labatt ice box. That's odd. And then I looked and I was like, it says it's, I think it was like 10.2%. 10.2%? Yeah. And it was like, I think there were 500 mil bottles was what the, the, the box said. I was like, what the hell are you doing with your life if you're drinking 500 mil bottles of 10.2% Labatt ice? Actually, I know it's kind of sad. It's not a life I want to live. It's like, why do they make this? <laughs> Well, but by the same token, we still have Crest Super in the LCBO. You know. Somebody the other day brought up Four Loco. Where did Four Loco go? Well, they banned it after the caffeine thing. I've never even had a Four Loco. I feel like I missed something. Well, you've had a Red Bull and vodka. Oh, I've had better than that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had some crazy Red Bull variety uh cocktails but yeah but no fort loco was different because it was like i guess if you put enough vodka in but that stuff was like seven percent in a can or something like that it was oh, ridiculous I had, I had friends in university who drank rev yeah i, I think you can still get rev well and, and the only people i ever see purchasing rev are people who need both caffeine and alcohol at the same time yeah are, you know they've got a place to be yeah yeah usually under a bridge rev is not nice stuff i actually have a, a general rule of thumb if it's in a twist top pet bottle i don't want to i don't want to prejudge everything but i'm just saying that's a real red flag right out of the gate now i can imagine that nobody will ever get to this point in the recording so me saying this is completely useless but uh there is a mental game i play as i'm walking along the street in toronto which is trying to see how well a neighborhood is doing by analyzing the empties that are littered on the ground. Mm -hmm. And if you're in a lake or nice neighborhood, you're not doing so well. But sometimes there'll be like a mad tum or possibly a Canuck. You know? yep. You're like, okay, it's gentrifying. That's fine. The other day, as I'm walking to the Grant Brewery, there was a can of stag chili. I and saw it, you posted this. Yeah, I yeah. I don't know what that meant. Is that better or worse than a Molson cold shot? I'm not. But it was, uh, it was a very hot variety of yeah. stag chili. I mean, so they've got some spice tolerance, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, so who knows? I when I was in high school, I ate a lot of stag chili. Because again, you heard my high school schedule. I would often come home and we had one of the, you know, the electric and I would open the stag chili and put it in the pot. And uh I would, well, I would toast about eight pieces of bread. Yep. Yeah. And then eat that. I haven't had a stag chili in a long time. But the key was at that point already in my life, I wasn't eating meat and stag chili had a non-meat based canned chili. Yeah, yeah, totally. So that's, what, that's what I was on. Yeah. I remember years ago, we were living on Glen Manor. So Grace was a tiny baby or was maybe not even born yet. So about 12 years ago. Do you remember... Um, what was his name? He did like marketing at Amsterdam when they were on Bathurst. He had like very fashionable hair. Blake Van Delft. Exactly. Blake. I knew Blake lived in the area. Like we never saw each other or interacted, but I knew he lived in the area. And one morning I was taking one of our old dogs, now long dead, for a walk on the beach and there was a can of nut brown. And do you remember the CJM brown? I can't remember. It, it was basically like a, it was a, a like, it was actually a little bit like um, devil's pale. It was like a very dark pale ale. And, but it was in the glass bottle and, and underneath one of the lifeguard towers was a can of nut brown and a can or a bottle of the CJM brown or whatever it was called. And I took a photo of it and I posted it on Facebook, which, you know, was a thing and uh, literally tagged him in it and yeah. was like, I didn't leave these here. And so I have to assume you did. And, and then he, he messaged me privately because he was embarrassed. He was like, oh, I, I was on a date and things were happening and we went down to the beach and had a couple of drinks and I just completely forgot we left those there. I'm like, dude, it's not a problem. I don't care. Like people litter on the beach all the time, but I just love that. I was like at that time, 12 years ago, even in the beach, I'm like, there's only two people here, especially the bottle, the, the nut Brown. Okay. But that mm -hmm. bottle, you can only get it at the brewery. And there are only two people probably in this, whole neighborhood who knows where that brewery is and if it ain't mine it's got to be his <laughs> yeah it used to be a much smaller world way smaller mm. now literally i go to a customer like because i'm delivering the mail you know i go up on a customer's porch to drop some mail and they've got like a little box of empties which is kind of fun like i i actually get to critique them i'm like oh what are you into oh okay interesting oh, hmm. wouldn't have thought that but so often now I go up on a person's porch and I see, I see left field and I see Godspeed. And I'm just like, I like, there's nothing I can do to make delivering mail better, but I'm like, you know, I, I make sure they're nice and squared up before I put them in the box. And I just want everything to be neat and tidy. <laughs> like you guys are doing good. Here's your mail. <laughs> but this is the thing, right? Like craft beer eventually won. I mean, the market saturation continues to increase, albeit a little slowly. It's just that nobody thought this was what it was going to look like. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And I think the thing is, the idea of like chasing like market share is almost kind of crazy 
because of the reality. And like, I remember saying this years and years and years ago to people, like I would be doing like educational tasting stuff and I'd be like, there are a lot of people who just don't like this yeah. and that's fine. Like, you know, th there are a lot of people who don't like watching tennis. Like Wimbledon was just on. I didn't watch Wimbledon. I don't care about watching tennis. It doesn't mean anything to me. Right. N nobody's ever going to convert me to tennis. It's just not something I care about. And a it's the same with beer. Like a, a lot of the English beer drinking people out there on Twitter are paying real serious attention to the ashes at the moment. <laughs> if Douglas Adams couldn't make me care. I don't think anybody else is going to. As a sidebar, we do need to get going. But so I've got a group chat with a bunch of my coaches for the minis. And uh, one of them is English, actually more than one of them, but the guy I'm thinking of, there's, there's a couple of key chatters and one of them is English. One of them is Australian. One of them is a Kiwi. Oh, perfect. And, uh, so there's been a lot of ashes chatter, but, uh, I keep pointing out the ashes is without a doubt, the stupidest trophy you will ever see it literally looks like a joke. Like you see these grown men sweaty from the heat of competition, having finally gotten there and won the trophy and they hold this thing up and people listening, I would very much encourage you to Google image search the ashes trophy. It's the size of an egg cup. Yeah. Like it's, it's maybe seven centimeters tall. Maybe, but it looks like it should be a meter tall. Like it's the right shape to be a trophy. It's it, it literally, is this a trophy for ants? This is going to have to be at least four times big, but it's so small. And then it's even better because they'll try and group in. And it's like one guy physically yeah. dominates this trophy. You get an entire 11 cricket players trying to pose like you can't get them all in because if you do the trophy is so small you can't see it it's tiny you'd have to put it in the foreground and get them to stand 40 feet back yeah, yeah exactly put a little platform off the, the the lens of the camera so it's sitting here and then everyone else is 10 meters behind it hey we won the big one now i get it it contains the ashes of a bale from a cricket game that i don't know something blah 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 colonization but it's the dumbest trophy in the entire world and they contest it with so much passion but it's also amazing because it's the most possibly colonial thing that could ever exist because like they're literally fighting over the burned ashes of the past yeah it's and the only, I guess, like, aside from the small trophy, the only thing that you really get is the ability to lord it over some other member of the Commonwealth. And I, I would have to confirm this. I don't know over the entire history of the Ashes, but certainly over the past, say, 20 years of the Ashes, it's always Australia. Australia always goes, ha ha, we beat you again, you stupid pommies. <laughs> yeah. Well, you got to give them something to do. Yeah, you know, there's only so much resource extraction and um, political gamesmanship you can do. I can't tell you, I, for one, I can't tell you who the Prime Minister of Australia is right now. And even if I could, I probably couldn't tell you who it was two months ago, because, man, they go through a lot of Prime Ministers down there. 
Well, I don't know about that, but like from a resource extraction standpoint, I do have one story. And I think we should probably finish after this one because it's like, you know, we got places to be. I'm but game. I, I was, you know, I lead walking tours for Toronto Urban Adventures uh, and more recently for a company called With Locals. And like one of the first five or six tours I had to do back in like 2017, we had people from Australia. Like I'm looking up the country code on the phone number, figure out where people are from. So I know what to look for, right? And I get to the start point of the tour, and there's a guy in the middle of the street taking pictures of trucks that are driving by. I'm like, wow, I'm glad it's not that guy. And he walks over. Yeah, it was that guy. <laughs> it's that guy. So he's a, he's a truck driver for a gold mining company in, uh, in Perth on the West Coast. Yeah. And legitimately, like, he's a proper professional truck driver. One arm is all just sunburn and carcinoma. Yeah, um, and the other one's fish belly white. Exactly right. Yeah, and he, his name is Craig, and Craig, you know, took like in proper Western Australian. And I, I said, "All right, we're going to make sure you have fun. Why are you in the middle of? Because I drive trucks for a living, and these are old." And his wife's explaining it to me like she's got a very high pitched voice. So, hey, you, you. when he's driving trucks back home, you know. He, that kind of thing. When he's doing that, he, he, he's driving brand new trucks because it's a gold mining company. They buy new ones every year. Yeah. Um, insurance purposes or whatever. So I'm like, I'm trying to get him to drink something, you know, at the first stop. He doesn't know any brands. And he, they're from Western Australia. You know, it's my job to explain, well, you might like this thing. So I say to him, Craig, what's your favorite beer? Like, what do you drink in Australia? He's, eh, four eggs. And I'm like, that is a terrible answer. I'm not saying this out loud because Craig is, you know, a guest, but it's four X's for people who, you know, can't spell beer, XXX, mm -hmm. Castle Maine Gold. And I said to him, so that must be, um, that's like a brand loyalty thing. You must have chosen that when you were a very young man. That must be the reason you're, you're drinking this beer. And he said, no, I'm drinking this beer because my wife wanted me to switch down from Jack Daniels. What? And she's like, yeah. Um, so we're going to get him whatever he wants, you know? And we get, at the end of the second stop, we're at Betty's, he's, he's got enough beard and we've got him on Mill Street Organic. He likes that. He likes one thing. He just wants to, you know, drink yellow fizzy beer. And, the better. Yeah, exactly. Because reasons. So he, he's like, he's doing really well. He goes to the washroom. His, his wife, who... Uh, Thanks for taking Craig seriously. Last time, he chose where we went on vacation. This is my shot this time around. Last time, he broke his neck trying to do a backflip on a BMX motorcycle. I'm like, he, he broke his neck? Yeah, and his leg in three places. I'm like, uh... No, I'm trying to convince myself that these Australian people are urbane and, you know... Not in, not in Western Australia. No, it's Mad Max out there for sure. And it's like, I've been trying to disabuse myself of the notion and like give people a chance, you know, so that you don't have to stereotype. But he comes out of the washroom. Ah, I want to show you something. And he's got um, his phone out and he's got a video of his riding lawnmower. I think it's a Kawasaki and he's tricked it out to go 50 kilometers an hour. He's doing burnout donuts on his lawnmower in the video at a rally where people specifically gathered to do that. Yeah. Like, they've all tricked out their lawnmowers. And it's just like, okay. 
it's cool. Stereotypes exist for a reason sometimes. <laughs> the Aussie in the group chat, the coach, is a guy called Malcolm. He's yeah. in his 60s, I think. I think he's in his 60s. Came out because his neighbor's kid wanted to get into rugby, U10, under 10. He's like, oh, yeah. And he used to play for the beach. He's back yeah. in the day. He said, oh, I'll come out. Yeah, I'll be all right. And uh, came out, coached maybe three weeks. Then he texts me one day before training. goes, oh, sorry, I'm not going to be able to make it. I was about to do that with an Australian accent. The phone didn't have an Australian accent. And uh, not going to be able to make it. Um, I was mountain biking with some friends last night, and I fell and broke two vertebrae in my collarbone. Yep. <laughs> I went, all right, Malcolm, man, I hope you, I hope you get better all right he's been very active in the group chat he's fine he's got a weird robocop brace on yeah guys in his and, and he goes oh i was lucky i had my friends with me i would have died out there if it wasn't for them <laughs> okay some people just don't have risk avoidance as a feature it's just they just go they just go all the, until they don't and then they're done yeah but what a way to go not a bad way to go. Hey, speaking of going till you're done, this is Pabst Blue Ribbon, and you can buy it anywhere you buy beer. Anywhere you buy beer. This, incidentally, was juicing. Slightly harder to get your hands on, but worth checking out. And special shout-out, Two Loons. Get that, too. If you like beer and you like delicious things, that's a beer that's delicious. Jordan, thank you for joining me. Uh, what a fun little just... Literally, what we just did was spent two hours catching up, and if anybody wants to listen in... You can figure out where we're both at. Yeah, we didn't really swear very much either, so it's wholesome for the whole family. It's true. Yeah, your kids can listen. Uh, <laughs> as I teased, I'm going to be on Ben Johnson's podcast. Um, I don't know when it comes out. Soon? So that'll be interesting. And uh, next week, don't know what's happening. Jordan, you're not doing your podcast anymore. We didn't even talk about you, really, on that side. Uh, no, I got so many different directions I'm being pulled in at the moment that it just doesn't, you know... I quite like the downtime. I don't think people appreciate, because it seems like not that big a deal, how actually time-consuming and mentally exhausting it is kind of week in, week out, just, just spending even 25 minutes, 30 minutes recording a thing and then putting it out. It's, it's not easy. Well, we did it for about uh, two and a half years, and uh, the takeaway from it is that the things that you would assume are going to be newsworthy generally aren't. Like, there are a lot of breweries that open. They're very similar. They don't really have any experience yet, so it's just like, this happened. Great. Um, and the things that are important are, you know, so weighty, typically, to such a large number of people that you, you don't want to um, step on them too hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, anytime a brewery closes down, you have to feel for the people, because especially if you went around the province and you wrote books, you kind of know them and you're kind of rooting for them. Uh, so it's always hard to watch that shit. Yeah, that's that's not easy. And, and that's between closures and buyouts. It's been happening a lot recently, but... Uh, more coming. There are absolutely more coming. Incidentally, if you want to start yourself a brewery and need a real fire sale deal on some equipment, keep an eye on Kijiji. Uh, <laughs> That's what we got tonight. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and remind everybody that this song is Link Ray Gun from Rob Curry and the Curry Brothers. And 
as soon as oh no i don't want to end this what i want to do i have to stop this in two places hey jordan thanks for hanging out i think i got my buttons down you have yourself a good night but don't go anywhere okay Thank you.